to the new version of the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer. I've been coming to you over the radio for, wow, maybe almost two decades now. Uh, But this pandemic changes things. I'm hoping to go back on radio soon. But right now we're taking a hiatus. But you can't shut me up. (laughs) So we're doing a podcast. And we're going to play around with the format. Uh, We're going to see what works best. We'll do different things each week. And we'd love to have this still be a conversation with all of you. So let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. You can email me at at fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. All right. So let me tell you how today's show is going to work. First, I'm going to welcome on my colleague, Zach Thompson. We're going to discuss a very interesting topic uh, that most travelers have dealt with over the years. Then we'll we'll segue into the travel news. And then we're going to end the show with a segment from my dad. Yes, Arthur Fromer uh, has joined. He's actually been in the digital age forever, uh, but he helped me make this one. So we'll, we'll end with his segment on the national parks. All right, let me bring in Zach Thompson. Zach Thompson is the managing editor of Fromers.com. Hey, Zach, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Pauline. Thank you for having me. Sure. Well, thank you for being here. So we thought it would be interesting to start this new enterprise with a discussion of souvenirs, because it's a topic that I think a lot of people are ashamed of. A lot of people think, oh, I love to collect souvenirs, but it's kind of hokey or not ashamed, or they filled their houses with them and it defines who they are. Um, There's a wonderful book by Rolf Potts. You may know Rolf Potts because he wrote the, the seminal book called Vagabonding, which covered his many years on the road and told other would-be wanderers how to do it. Uh, well, more recently, he wrote a book called Souvenir, which goes into the history of souvenirs, which date all the way back to the Mesopotamian era, uh, what the word means. Um, Let's start with that. It's actually a French word that was adopted into English in the 1700s, but in the French, it means either to remember or to get back to oneself. I thought that was was really cool. The the idea is that the object brings you back to yourself somehow or brings a the object an experience in some way yeah it in some way talks to the the real you i mean he talks in the book about the fact that people often bring back souvenirs because it reminds them that their life hasn't always been everyday and mundane. It reminds them that they did get out of their hometown, that they saw the world and experienced who they were in different ways. Um, in fact, he talks about the fact that there are several categories of souvenirs. Uh, some of the earliest ones were relics. People would visit Vishnu temples in Varanasi, India to bring back uh Glass phalluses, uh, which was an avatar of the god. Hey, that's something I probably couldn't have said on the radio. So it's fun (laughs) doing a podcast. That should have been the name of this show. (laughs) Glass phalluses, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, So, and then, of course, there were pieces of the true cross. There were many, many Christian relics. In fact, 
at the Church of the Ascension in Jerusalem. That is the spot where it was said that Jesus Christ got off the cross and he rose up into heaven from that very spot. And that's well, after why the, in, after the tomb, post-resurrection. Oh, after right? the tomb. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so they keep one part of the church totally unpaved because they say that you can see Jesus's footprint there. But <laughs> because so many people wanted a piece of Jesus's footprint, uh, the monks have had to bring in ton after ton of dirt to re to put it on that area because pilgrims constantly were were, were taking it away. Can you so still you see, have? Can you still see the footprint? I don't know. I was there. I don't remember a footprint, but it was pretty busy. I mean, you know, I don't think a footprint would last that long. Yeah. Is uh, it? So, I want. I was a barefoot, or is he wearing a sandal? There, I have so many questions. Wow, that is a good question. I don't know. What do you rise to heaven in? Bare? I don't know. I would rise uh, barefoot. I think. Yeah. So. That's one. So that's a religious relic. And then there are cultural relics. I was shocked when I read this in in Rolf Potts' book, uh, that when Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were in Europe in the 1780s, they were there as ambassadors for the fledgling United States. And they, they decided to travel around England together. And they were taken to Stratford-on-Avon, both big Shakespeare fans, and they were shown a chair that they said the bard had put his fanny in. (laughs) And so they asked the guy showing them the chair to go out of the room, and then they both carved off splinters of the chair and took them home with them. Just the manner, Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) Right. So... So you have so you have cultural relics, religious relics, and then in the 20th century, when tourism became much more common, souvenirs became a big business, uh, and you would find the same type of souvenir in many places, like memorial spoons, mm-hmm. uh, or or etched glasses, or uh, you know other things. Um, and it's still a massive business, but I I kind of like going back to the the getting that the, the souvenir has a part of yourself in it. I don't know. Do you yeah. do you have any souvenirs that are meaningful to you? Well, I'm not the biggest souvenir person. Um, I, I live in a small apartment in New York City, and who needs the clutter? Um, my my spouse is a big fan of souvenirs, though. Whenever we're at those vacation uh, stands, he's always wanting to shop for knickknacks, uh, but like mugs and magnets, refrigerator magnets, and he wants to send home to his. Um, Mother, he gets be said to be authentic because uh, they were made in China, and you're in Istanbul, and it's like a refrigerator magnet of the Hagia Sophia. I don't know. Uh, I, I do think though, if if you attach meaning to it, it has meaning. You know, it doesn't have necessarily have to be authentic in that way. It can be personally authentic to your life, which I think is what the uh, the guy you were quoting said before. I think when imbued with memory and inanimate object can can unlock a whole world of feeling like Proust Madeleines uh, Madeleines I never know how to say that or um, the there's a, the, a, this great scene in 
the Aeneid by Virgil, where uh, the hero, Aeneas, he's in Carthage and he sees this wall mural of the Trojan War, which he's just survived. And there on the battlefield, he sees all his friends and foes and he cries and um, remarks on the, the, how it's a, it's a, we live in a world of sorrows. And what I take that to mean, or what that illustrates for me really is the way that um, the material world does contain like a kind of emotion or like an ache that um, mm. goes beyond the physical dimensions of the uh, of the objects. Just I don't have room for a mural in my uh, apartment, so <laughs> I <laughs> have to be judicious. So um, the ones that I keep are you know, uh, older, they usually come from my childhood. So what I brought for show and tell, Pauline, is the, <laughs> yes. um, this uh, these the set of three sea captains that are carved from wood. They're only about two and a half inches tall. And I got them when I was about eight, I'm going to say, uh, in the Florida Panhandle, which is where we used to go for vacation when I was a kid. Uh, they call it the Emerald Coast now. It's got white sand and blue-green water. Less yeah, charitable it's a beautiful souls. Area. Yeah, it is beautiful. Less charitable souls call it the Redneck Riviera uh, because a lot of people from <laughs> Mississippi and uh, Alabama and my home state of Arkansas go hogs uh, visit there um, for vacation. But um, I chose these guys guys, they're, um, they're each, they all look like, uh, Ernest Hemingway, the three sea captains, uh, except they're in different outfits. One, one is wearing like a pea coat with brass buttons. Uh, one has on like a, ye- a rain slicker. It's yellow. And one is like in a casual look. He's got suspenders on, he's got his jacket off. Um, and, uh, I had to have them. I, we were at some souvenir store. I don't think they have anything to do with Northwest Florida. They, they look like they're <laughs> from a whaling ship in New England. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a Florida captain, but they usually, you know, they don't wear pea coat. You're lucky if you get a shirt at all. Um, but I, I, for me, they do um, unlock that 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 time and that place, the 80s and uh, the Florida panhandle. And it's powdered sugar beaches and uh, go-kart tracks and my uh, the the peel and eat them shrimp dinners that my uncle Tommy who's no longer with us uh uh used to make so I do think tchotchkes you know can speak volumes uh, despite their size if they mean something to you do you do you think the fact that you kept these tchotchkes maybe they were a look at what your future life would be as a travel writer perhaps they're they Maybe, maybe I I think, uh, yeah, maybe like I saw a vision, uh, they they stood for journeying and adventure to me. Maybe. Sure. Let's go with that. What about you? What are, (laughs) what are, what's a meaningful souvenir you have? Well, when I was on my honeymoon, uh, my husband and I got an around the world ticket and uh, one of our stops was the island of Bali and Bali became the perfect tourist island, not only because it has gorgeous beaches and rice paddies and splendid temples, but because it is a shopper's paradise. Every little town has its own specialty. So you go to one town and it's all the woodworkers. And I always tell people if they're going to Bali to uh, bring measurements from their living room, you know, if, if you need a new curio cabinet, if you need this, if you need that, even with the shipping, it'll be so much cheaper to get it there and it'll be exquisite. It'll be oh. handmade. So you go to the painting town, you go to the woodworking town, and we went to the stone carver's town and fell in love with a pair of stone Garudas. Garuda is a Hindu 
well, he, I think he is a god. He was really the mount, though. He, he He's a big bird, a kind of a magical-looking bird that Vishnu rode. And Vishnu would go into battle with Garuda to uh, protect the Dharma, which is the way. And so I thought, wow, you know, protect the, the – this is maybe a nice metaphor for going into married life going into it together and trying to protect our truth together. I don't know. That sounds I like that. asinine, actually. <laughs> what are the, what but, do they look like? So the birds, uh, they are kind of, they're, they're grayish. They actually match our fireplace perfectly. It looks like they were created for them. Yeah, who needs a metaphor if you have feathers uh, and color palette? Yeah. Uh, so, so they're, they're, they're just they're just beautiful. They're kind of squat and and square, uh, and they look like they're part of the fireplace, which they're not. But when we brought them home, sandstone is very delicate, so we had it it wrapped elaborately. We had to buy a new bag to bring it to home, and we were going from Bali to Thailand. And wow, did they ever think we were drug smugglers? Mule. We had to stop. <laughs> we had to. We spent like two hours, you know, unwrapping it, showing them that there was nothing inside it. You know, I was worried they were going to break it open and destroy yeah, our, but they didn't. Midnight Express so, situation. You um, could be in Bali still. So that still. was a, a meaningful. Uh, thing for me. Now you on Fromers.com, one of the things we do on Fromers.com is we cover the news a lot. And you just wrote a fascinating piece about somebody who regretted the souvenir they brought home, right? Yeah, this uh, woman uh, in... Uh, from Canada. Uh, she's only been identified as Nicole. She returned uh, some tiles, uh, a, a piece of a jar and a, and, a, and a ceramic piece of a wall that she stole from Pompeii in 2005. Wow. And she says that since then, in the, la- in the, ne- in the intervening 15 years, she's had nothing but bad luck. I, I, she had uh, health problems. She's had money woes. And so she sent them back all these years later and uh, with a letter uh, that was like, please take them back. They bring bad luck. They're cursed. I don't want to pass this curse along to my children um, and begged for forgiveness from God. Wow. What I love about this is this is so common. I guess a lot of people have stolen from Pompeii over the years that they have a little museum, right? The museum next door, the antiquarium has a whole exhibit of all the stuff that people have returned. And they say that there hasn't been much monetary value, but it's uh, interesting from an anthropological perspective. And this lady is not the first one to say that uh, the items were cursed. I guess it's because they were associated with death and destruction. There's like negative energy, bad juju, you know, is what they say. Yeah, yeah. I say she deserves points for eventually doing the right thing, you know? Well, she had to get cancer twice. No, but I'm I mean, saying she did you know? <laughs> something she deserves for her life to improve now is what I'm saying for the next 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing uh, it's just it, you're warned in that episode of the Brady Bunch where they steal the tiki statuette and get bad luck in Hawaii and it's cursed. Do you remember that? See, the, the Brady Bunch knew all along. And uh we have an article that I wrote uh, about another place in Italy uh, that had some good news attached to it. Um, 
for the for many centuries, Venice has been plagued by its physical situation. Venice was built in these marshlands. Uh, the uh, the original Veneti, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, settled on these little islands as a defensive move because the barbarians were coming over the Alps and were constantly raping and pillaging them. And so they were able to protect themselves with these natural moats. And then eventually Venice became one of the most important seafaring uh, societies in the history of the world. And they filled these little mud flat islands with incredible churches and museums and chapels and palaces. And it's just an exquisite place. But the problem was it's sinking. Mm-hmm. Those little mud flats weren't meant to carry that much weight. Uh, it's also a problem with climate change. Uh, mm-hmm. There's the the waters are rising in the lagoon and in the oceans in general, and that too is is hurting. Um, Venice. As well, in the 60s, they decided to dredge part of the lagoon so that tankers, oil tankers could come in, and that really messed things up. So when all of this, when the dredging started happening and when climate change really became a problem, the flooding, which they call Aqua Alta, which happened maybe every 10 years until the 1960s, started happening pretty much yearly. In fact, there were 34 aqua altas between 2014 and 2018. And in 2019, one of the worst ones ever happened with the waters rising to six feet and destroying a lot of things, billions of dollars worth of damage. So yeah, it was like the, the worst ever, just, wasn't it? In November, I think it yeah. was the worst one they'd ever it's had. Second or, worst, second, second worst. worst. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the the Italians decided in uh, when was it? I think it was two thousand three that they would build water gates, and that's a funny name for this because <laughs> they wanted to create water gates which would rise up with with air in them and create a barrier from the sea getting into the lagoon and swamping Venice. It was supposed to cost about $1.4 billion. It ended up costing four times that. And it was also, I think, was it 17 years late? It was really, really late. It was the water, it was truly the Italians' water gate. And, <laughs> and a and lot of people. A, that, that's an apt comparison, too, because there were a lot, of, there was a, there were corruption scandals attached to it, yes. I think, with the politicians. It was a Absolutely. So, so people never thought it was ever going to work. Yeah. But then two weekends ago, it did. There was bad weather coming. They knew Venice would be flooded. So they started putting up all of the wooden walkways that allow the Venetians to get from place to place when the city is flooded. But they didn't have to use them. The water gates were activated for the very first time. And they worked. Kind of a miracle. Now, is it going to be better than sliced bread? It's hard to know. Uh, A lot of ecologists are saying that because of climate change, they may have to engage these water gates so often that Venice's lagoon could become a sewer. And it could totally kill what's in the lagoon because in order to protect the city, they... The, like the water would flow in it out to the Adriatic Sea, yeah, yeah, and that wouldn't clean it, so it, it would become a filthy cesspool. Um, but for now, 
I feel hopeful about this. Yeah. Sorry. I like, I I like I, the name. The, the name in Italian is the Mose Project, which I guess is the same word for Moses in Italian, which I like because you can either say because M-O-S-E. It, yeah. Either because it's a miracle or because it's taking 40 years in the desert to finish. But um, I think that stands for something too, but like an acronym, part acronym, part biblical reference. But so how does it work? There are- um, Perhaps. Yeah. There are, I'm not there sure. Um, so those are both about Italy, yeah. a place we cannot go right now as Americans. But Zach, you did a great story recently on Fromers.com about some of the beach destinations that will welcome Americans in winter. So could give us a taste of that. Uh, a lot of them have... Um a lot of places have quarantine or are closed entirely to Americans, uh, you know, the um, European Union countries, except for, I think, Croatia uh, and a few places in like Turkey is open to Americans. But here in this hemisphere, uh, your best option is the Caribbean. A lot of places are open without quarantine or um is in some places, no tests at all. Uh, the Dominican Republic had a test requirement that was dropped. Now it's uh, just they're randomly administering tests for, I think, 3 to 10% of new arrivals at the airport have to be tested. Mexico doesn't have test or quarantine at all. So Cancun, the Riviera Maya, Los Cabos, Puerto Vallarta, the Riviera Nayarit, there's no quarantine, no test, uh, just uh, health screening forms, masks, uh, social distancing. Um, there, uh, you can go to Costa Rica starting November 1st. Um, all, uh, I think originally they had a plan where they're only going to let in people from certain low risk States, uh, in the U S but on November 1st, they're dropping that requirement. All Americans from every state, uh, are, are allowed to visit Costa Rica as long as you have a, uh, negative, COVID-19 test result taken from within within no more than 72 hours before you travel. They usually have some sort of timing uh, component like that, the test requirement for COVID-19 test. So Costa Rica is a good option starting in November. Uh, and this is good too. That's their high season. So it's, uh, it's good uh, for winter travel. The Bahamas is another one that opens on November 1st. Um, they had a quarantine rule. Uh, they've had a rocky reopening. So they opened uh, in July, I think it was. Uh, and then they went back on it. They dropped uh, everything after the U.S. had a coronavirus surge. They said that um, no U.S. flights could come in. And then they a few days later, they resumed uh, flights from the continental U.S. Or I guess from all of the U.S. Uh, w- with a quarantine rule that you'd have to... Um, uh, self-isolate for 14 days upon arrival in the Bahamas. And that's kind of prohibitive to most travelers because nobody wants to be stuck at their resort for 14 days uh, for their at the start of their vacation. It takes up most of your vacation to begin with. Uh, but on November 1st, the Bahamas is dropping that. Um, for, from On that date, you'll just have to take a test uh, within seven days before travel and take a test upon arrival um, and then take another test after four days if you're staying longer Oof. than five days. Um, so wow. you want to, with all of these, you want to familiarize yourself with the testing requirements. We have a, if you go to fromers.com, we're keeping track of all the Caribbean testing regulations and yeah. other things like beach openings and yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you will be able to have this type of vacation. Frankly, I'd feel more comfortable in the places that want you tested. Uh, yeah. uh, that seems smarter to me. I would rather get tested and know that everybody on the plane with me and everybody in the destination was also tested. Yeah, you understand why they're why they want why they want to uh, want to let more tourists in because their economies are so dependent on yeah. tourism in those uh, destinations. But it, it is a balancing act between the health. Of of their citizens and the health of the economy, which sure, sure, it's I guess that's the story everywhere, but especially ones uh, dependent on tourism. Yeah. Well, on that unhappy note, I'm going to say thank <laughs> you, Zach. Note. Yes, uh, thanks so thank much. You it was for fun appearing, and we're, we're going to now have my father, Arthur Fromer, on. So here he is. Well, hello there, and let me welcome all of our listeners. To, let me welcome you to this podcast about smart travel. I'm Arthur Frommer, as Paulina said, and I'm the founder of the popular Frommer Travel Guides to destinations all over the world. For years, we've had the delightful experience of sharing our enthusiasm for the best of those destinations with our readers. So publication of the Frommer Travel Guides is a labor of love. But now there's a problem. Because of the outbreak of the pandemic, the emergence of that dreaded coronavirus, it has been extremely difficult for Americans to travel to international destinations. Those, those flights that we used to take to London, Paris, Madrid, and Rome are a thing of the past for most Americans, which means that uh, starting now, it, it is simply trips within the United States that are the realistic course for our Americans. And the best known of those lists, of those trips rather, are inexpensive stays in the U.S. national parks. Those stays are almost totally available and they are legal for most Americans. But the most popular of the parks which are Yellowstone, Yosemite, and Grand Canyon, are often totally booked up as far as their cabins and hotels are concerned. And people wishing to enjoy them are relegated instead uh, to a smaller number of lesser known national parks. But therein lies a potentially superior vacation opportunity because in the states of Utah in particular, and also Nevada, Wyoming, and nearby, are a group of U.S. national parks that offer spectacular vacations for reasonable costs. And all of them are entirely legal to use, even in the midst of the pandemic. Now, my own list of easily enjoyed parks are somewhat lesser known and mainly they are clustered in the state of Utah, but to a smaller extent in the states of Wyoming and Nevada. All of them are well serviced by various airlines from all over the nation, but you will still want to rent a car to drive to the, from the airport you have selected to the park you have selected for your initial visit. The names of these lesser national parks are Arches National Park, Canyonlands National Park, Red Horse National Park, Bryce K. 
Canyon National Park and Zion National Park. So take out a map, locate your desired airport, and you'll find each of these desired parks within easy driving distance from the airport you've chosen. And this usually you will be no more than 100 or 125 miles away. And each such park are cabins and and uh, uh, wonderful uh, uh, hotels uh, for your overnight accommodations and eating facilities uh, for your for your meals. Uh, what you won't find are masses of other automobiles that sometimes hinder the enjoyment of Yellowstone, Yosemite, and Grand Canyon. But what you will find is extraordinary scenery and breathtaking natural wonders that some visitors will claim are the exact equivalent of those found in the more famous parks. And in some, you will experience wildlife, and in all of them, you will be enveloped in awesome mountains and canyons and fields, creating memories for a lifetime. Now, let, let me state this again. Let me list this again. Once again, the parks to which I refer are Arches National Park, Canyonlands National Park, Bryce Canyon National Park, and Zion National Park. Some visitors rank these among the most memorable sites of all of their travelers. Now, I, as I've earlier pointed out, none of these parks are currently closed to visitors, and all of them are quite easily visited. Their only occasional drawback is that some tourists planning to leave their home states to visit these magnificent parks will sometimes find that their home state will issue regulations requiring that if they return from these parks to their home state, they will be sometimes required uh, to, to quarantine themselves for as long as, as two weeks. And that is not a total, that is not a, a, a total uh, and, uh, requirement that you find, obvious, but obviously you won't want to burden your vacation with that requirement. These are often changeable requirements and you won't always encounter them. A great many of the parks and a great many of the home states have no requirement whatsoever that if you return to your home state, you will be required to quarantine yourself. So in planning your trip, you will first want to examine the regulations of your home state to determine whether quarantining upon returning there is required. Let me again emphasize that, emphasize that this isn't always the case. Most travelers will find that those occasional trips to the state of Utah and to Nevada and to Wyoming are not associated with quarantine requirements. So there you have it, a visit to these memorable U.S. national parks, these lesser known U.S. national parks. A visit there is a top travel experience, even in these difficult times of pandemic. I'm Arthur Fromer, and this is a podcast on smart travel.